Jesus, we stand in awe of you, of who you are. The example that you gave, the teachings that we get to study, the sacrifice that you made for us. You are even this moment seated at the right hand of the Father, declaring it is finished. The bridge has been rebuilt. The fracture has been fixed. We've been brought back into your family as your sons and as your daughters. And for that, we give you thanks. We ask as we study that we would know how to walk out this brilliant life that you've put before each of us. So give us wisdom. We ask this in your name. Amen. So we've been looking at the book of Proverbs. Um, in reading Proverbs, I think Proverbs has tons of subjects, but it kind of addresses three areas, relationships, uh, husband, wife, friends, father, mother, like relationships, relationship with God. Um, it has a bunch of warnings, number two. And then number three, it, it does ambition. It has tons and tons of verses on the ambition that we have, the drives that we have. So there's I could, hundreds, maybe not a hundred, of just listening to the instruction, learn, grow, right? Ambition. Look how you use your money. Look how you do your work. All that stuff is in Proverbs. And I know this happens when you start talking about ambition because evangelicals have a weird relationship with ambition. Like, it's almost like we shouldn't have ambition. We should just kind of sit around and be happy that we're saved or something. So we have this, this tension with it. And it can be like, well, don't talk about ambition. You need to preach the gospel. You're not preaching the gospel if you're talking about ambition which always interests me uh, because we're in the Bible. And I think it's silly because what has happened to the gospel is this. It's been narrowed down, and this happened about 70 years ago. It's been narrowed down to four spiritual laws and then getting somebody to repeat a formula. So this grandeur, which is the gospel that begins in Genesis 3.15 and stretches all the way through to Revelation 22, that story has now been truncated to being, here are these four laws and repeat this formula. It grieves me, but that's a different study. At some point, we'll talk about the gospel, I think, uh, which is the story of King Jesus. And it just doesn't include one little glimpse of King Jesus. So ambition has that in it. Like, well, you know, you're getting uh, self-helpy or whatever. Um, l- let's think about that for a second. So if you struggle with that, let's look at the New Testament, the gospel for those that want to look at it that way. You read the New Testament and what you see is this. And this is the best way I've heard it put. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And if you get that nuance right, you start to see that. It's not, hey, I got sin saved. All my sins are forgiven. And so I'm just gonna sit around on my couch now. That is not the message you get from the New Testament, from grace at all, right? 
So let's think about Paul. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says this. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Grace awoke something in Paul. So awoke he was, he was like, ah, I'm gonna put everything I have into this thing now, into the kingdom, right? Or you start looking at Paul giving advice to young pastors. And he says this, he says, hey, if someone desires the office of overseer or elder, it's 1 Timothy chapter three. He doesn't say, they need to just relax, man. They should be happy that they're saved. What are they doing? He says, that's a really good thing. To desire to grow and to develop and to learn and to move up. He says, man, that is super good. And then he gives the qualifications. Here's what it's gonna take though. You want that? It's gonna take some work. Or he begins to talk to real personal letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy. And he says in 2 Timothy 2.6, he says this, hey, look at the hard working farmer. You want an example of what you're supposed to do, pastor? Be like the hardworking farmer. And then in verse 15, that same chapter, he says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a worker that needs not be ashamed. Then you skip to chapter three, where he talks about the Bible and its power and all this just, just brilliant section on scripture. And he says, hey, Timothy, you know this, the sacred scriptures. Now, when Paul's talking to Timothy about sacred scripture. It is not the New Testament. It's the Old Testament. It's what his mother and grandmother Eunice had taught him as a child. Hey, those things make you wise into salvation. And then he just goes through this whole thing, goes, listen, scripture, Old Testament, makes you equipped for every good work. See, grace Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Or how about Jesus? In the gospel of Matthew, at the very end of his life, chapter 25, he talks about this thing called the talents, really gifts from God. And then certain people took those talents and they used them, they worked and they saw them increase and grow and multiply and it was awesome. And they get to heaven and Jesus is like, hey, super job, man, rule 10 cities. The only one that didn't get a reward was the guy that said, ah, I'm good. I'm not doing anything with this. I don't need to. I just got saved. That's all. I don't need anything else. And he's the one that's cast out, actually. All right? So talents, man, you use them. And it's not just for the by and by. When you're, when you're seeing your talents increase, man, there's a satisfaction and a value and a worth. There's nothing worse in this world than for someone to say, dude, you are completely worthless because we have in us this image-bearing capacity that tells us we're supposed to add value. We're supposed to, okay? So Proverbs is like that. It's the sacred scriptures like Timothy that we're saying, we want to study this to become wise, equipped for every good work. That God's grace has not been bestowed upon us in vain, but his grace is doing something in us that we're like, man, I can't wait to work harder than anyone else. And Proverbs is full of this wisdom when it comes to ambitions, desires, 
wanting to grow, wanting to develop, whether it be with money or work or achievement or goals or purpose. There's tons of these Proverbs that are all about, hey, here's how you grow. So I actually had to make this into two parts because it was way too much. And so part one is this. It's, it's to the guy, to the gal that feels like a rocking chair. Lots of motion, but very little movement in their life, right? Some people, they work and they get 20 years of experience. Other people work for 20 years and they get one year of experience that they repeat 20 times. So what's the difference in those two? How do you become somebody that doesn't just have a lot of motion with little movement? How do you actually begin to see yourself go forward and grow and, and become wise into salvation, equipped for every good work that God has for you? So that would be today. How do you do that? How do you move? How do you go forward? How do you grow as a person in a biblical Proverbs wise kind of way. Okay, so I've got four things and we'll look at them quickly. Here's how you do it. Number one, you have to start it. That's number one. You have to start it. You need to go out and make some messes. You need to stop the paralysis of analysis, the fear of failure. You just gotta go for something. And here is one of my favorite Proverbs of all. It's Proverbs 14, four. And it says this. Where there are no oxen, the barn or the manger is clean. But abundant crops come from the strength of the oxen. Proverbs 14, four. You can have a squeaky clean life, never make any mistakes, never fail at anything, but you didn't do anything because you never tried anything. That's what that Proverbs is saying, all right? Then the other one that's probably number two on my list It's Proverbs 24, verse 16. And it says, the righteous will fall down seven times, but they'll rise again. It's not about falling that's the problem. Tripping up and falling is never an issue in the Bible. It's what do you do next? Do you wallow in the mud or do you get back up? And for believers, man, I've always just felt like as a believer, there's no such thing as failure, right? Isn't that really the promise of Romans 28? And I could give you a whole bunch of other verses. For we know all things, does all things include mistakes and messes? Sure seems to include it to me. We know all things work together for good. Now there's qualifications on this for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. If you're saying, Jesus, with my life, I wanna see your kingdom grow. I love you. I want to make sure you are always beautiful to the people that I'm around. Oh, go for it. I don't think you can ever make a mistake. And to me, it's just, this is fertilizer. Whatever you're doing, it's fertilizer for future fruit. Go for it. Learn. Fall down seven times. Get back up. Is there any safer, more brilliant incubator for people than that? You're good, man. Try it. I'm your heavenly father. I've given you this beautiful earth with all of its potential, gold bedellium. That's what Genesis 2 is saying. Hey, this creation has all this potential in it. Go explore, discover, learn, trip, make a mess and get back up trusting that I as your heavenly father can use it even for good. Stuff you couldn't imagine comes back and wow, that's how I grew, right? There, there might be giants in the land. 
Who cares? It's the land. Let's go in. Let's take it. Let's fall down seven times and get back up. That's the way to greatness. I'll give you a secular example of this. A college professor did this. Um, Pottery professor must have had a minor in sociology because this is what he did. He took his class. He divided it in half. Half the class, he told them this. In this semester, you will be graded by quantity. I don't care what your pottery looks like. If you give me 50 pounds of pottery at the end of the semester, you get an A. 40 pounds, you get a B, and so on. It was an environment welcoming failure. Fail all you want. Try things, discover things, go for it, right? The other half of the class, he said, you get one shot. You have 10 weeks to make a masterpiece. You'll be graded on your one masterpiece. That's a very harsh, no failing environment. Get it right or fail. Here's what surprised the professor at the end of the year or the term. The greatest pieces of pottery did not come from the group that had one masterpiece to make. In fact, most of those were pretty gross. The best pottery came from the quantity crew. The crew that was given the ability to fail, try things, fall down seven times, get back up, try something new. It incubated greatness. God knows us. He knows this is the environment that encourages growth. Make messes. Go for it. Fall down seven times, but just get back up. Do you know there there is a class of humans that have zero issue with failure? I'm not talking about the United States Congress. I'm talking about your toddler. They say toddlers, they'll try the same thing over and over and over, failing at it over and over. And they've done study after study that's found. They don't even care. It doesn't bother them one bit to fail until they reach the age of five. And something switches in them at about five years of age. Guess what it is? Dad and mom. See, up to about five, we're okay with failure. All of a sudden, at five or so, we start to subtly give them clues that failure is bad. Oh, that's too bad. The look of disappointment on our face. The, no, don't do it that way. Do it this way. And all of a sudden, what that signals to this infant, this five-year-old, excuse me, is failure is bad. Shrink back. Don't do it. God doesn't do that to us. He says, go make some messes. Go do it. Because Romans 8, 28, start it. Go for it. Try something. I think about Thomas Edison, who a reporter was trying to get him. And the reporter said to him, hey, we've heard that you've tried to invent the light bulb a thousand times and you failed. Thomas Edison had the classic kid answer. No way. I found a thousand ways not to make a light bulb. That's brilliant. That's Proverbs kind of wisdom. It's Jesus would invite you in. Hey, look at this beautiful place that I've given to you. Go for it. Try it. Read the biography of any successful person. I read biographies all the time. I have yet to read one where they're like, you know, I never failed. (laughs) Just, man, never even had a problem with potty training. From the time I was born till now, I've been perfect. Every story is full of, I did this and failed and that and failed, but then all those things built to my success. See, right now you write with pencil. You're not writing with ink. Go try something. If you don't like it, erase it. Start over. 
That's the brilliance. Fall down seven times, stand back up, make messes. Start it, is what Proverbs would say. If God's put something in your heart, put something in your mind, stop analyzing it. Go for it. Make a mess, Proverbs 14, 4. Start it, number one. Number two, shape it. So you might be going, cool, man. I'm just gonna go fail and fail and fail. I will be the fail army. Well, Proverbs always balances everything. So what Proverbs is gonna say, and if you look, there's a ton on this. I grabbed one because I love just the way it puts it. But there's tons of these Proverbs that are like, listen to instruction, get counsel, (laughs) listen to other people, (laughs) right? My favorite though is Proverbs 27, 17. And it says this, as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. Proverbs 27, 17. What a great one. Get around blacksmiths. Get around men and women and mentors and teachers and examples that have done things, that have succeeded, that have good counsel. Get around them, learn from them. And if you've ever watched a blacksmith do his work, heat and pounding, you want to get around ferocious kind of people, people that will willingly tell you where you're broken. I had a theology professor who was, he was a blacksmith like no one else. He would pound you. Just, he was fearless in that. And you're like, I, I loved it, man. I had no other people stop answering his questions. I'm like, I'll answer them. I don't care because I want to be pounded. I want it to rub off on me, right? Get around blacksmiths. So if, if, if you can't find somebody, start just reading some biographies. Like there are incredible biographies out right now for super cheap, just missionaries, pastors, entrepreneurs, local people. If you see somebody locally that you're like, I really admire what they're doing. Ask them to lunch. Tell them it will be 30 minutes exactly from 12 to 12.30. Go prepared. You eat, I'll get there at 11.30. I'll eat, I'll order yours. You come, you sit down, you're eating by the time you get there. And I'm gonna ask you some questions and have good questions and a notebook ready to take down what they're saying. Brilliant. I just finished a book by John Maxwell. And he was a pastor for many, many years, super successful guy. And when he was a young pastor, just starting out tiny little church, this is what he did. He looked around like a massive radius around him and tried to find successful pastors. And he would call them up and this is what he'd do. And he's 70 years old. So this is when he was in his 20s. 50 years ago, he did this. He would say, hey, I will give you $100 for one hour. Now that was 25% of his weekly salary. That's how important he thought blacksmithing was. And he would drive out to them with questions for one hour and write down what they said. Out of that birth, he started this organization called Equip. Equip is the largest mentoring blacksmithing organization in the world because he said, I found so much value in having my own desire shaped by somebody else. Huge. Get counsel. Zoom people, email people, write letters to people, text people. See, the greatest capital you and I have is experience, but it doesn't have to be yours. You can get somebody else's for really, really cheap. 
your own, ex- own capital, man, it takes a lot of work to make your own experience capital. It's really cheap to get somebody else's, even at 25% of your salary, that's still cheap. So number one, start it. Go for what God's put in your heart. Number two, shape it. Get counsel from people that are successful, Proverbs would say. Number three, and this is a big one, season it, okay? So here are the Proverbs for this. Proverbs 10, verse five says, he who gathers in the summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in the harvest is a son who brings shame. There's a season to farming. Then Proverbs 20, verse four. The slugger does not plow in the autumn. He will seek harvest and he'll have none of it. Or Proverbs 20, 29. The glory of young men, the season of being a youth, the glory of young men is their strength. But the splendor of old men is their gray hair. There's seasons also in life, like where you're at personally. And then the last one is Proverbs 19, verse two. Desire without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses the way. There's an order to success. Like there's a right thing at the right time. There's a right time to plow your field There's a right time to plant your field. There's a right time to weed your field. There's a right time to water your field. There's a right time to harvest your field. There are seasons and Proverbs is full of, you have to season to be successful. And here's the thing about United States that I think is interesting. We're really good at harvests. We're really good at high level goals that kids have. No problem, like they wanna be all this stuff. But I found this really interesting. I went to Africa back in February and we went to the church there that we've been supporting for, I think, 11 years. It's New Song Chapel in Nairobi. And after the service, I went outside and I talked with a group of young men. They're in their you know, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, that kind of age group. And I asked them, hey, what do you guys wanna do? And each one of them just said this, I want a job, any job. I don't care what the job is, I just want a job. Their society, their world, their view was so truncated and small. They had no high-level goal because they couldn't even see beyond that. They're from the slum. It's just, I just want a job. I don't care what it is. I don't care if I'm filtering trash. I just need a job, right? Well, I have the chance now, especially because of the age of my kids, to also ask other young kids from all kinds of ages, what do you want to do when you grow up? I've never had one say, I just want to filter trash. I'll take any job anywhere. No way. I want to be an NFL star. I want to be a professional soccer player. I want to be the CEO of a business. I want to be a professional skateboarder, right? We are really good at these high level goals. I want to be an instant influencer. I want to be on TikTok with a million views, right? We, we're really good at high, high goals. We've got no problem with harvest, none whatsoever. And that probably could go back to the American ethos, which is, hey, you can be whatever you wanna be, right? Land of opportunity. Could also be, over the past 40 years, there's been a movement in education where it's all about self-esteem. Like, make kids think they can do anything they want. 
So I'll quote Zac Efron from High School Musical. This is what he says, or he sings it. This is, to me, this is this generation. Quote, the answers are all inside of me. All I've got to do is believe. That's what we're telling kids now. You wanna be an NFL star? Man, the answer's all inside of you. You just have to believe you're gonna be an NFL star and you will become an NFL star, right? It's just that simple. Harvest is there, it's already waiting for you. So we're super good at these high level goals. You can do whatever you want. But the misstep we tell kids is we fail to say, yeah, you want that? You want a successful harvest out there? It takes hard work in the spring. It takes sweat in the summer if you wanna do that. You wanna be in the NFL, bro? You're 12 years old, start now. Start right now. Start running about five miles a day. Um, Don't quit till you throw the ball 200 times into a net, hitting the same spot over and over and over again, right? When your buddies are playing video games, you're out practicing a three-step drop. When everyone's having ice cream, you're getting some kale, right? That's the way it works. You wanna be a skateboard pro? Good. Start doing your trick 100 times in a row. You fall down seven times, you get back up, man. You can't fail it. You gotta do it over and over and over and over because there's seasons to life. And if right now you're not plowing and you're not planting, there will be no harvest out there. So we don't season it very well for kids anymore. We just tell them, just believe and you'll become whatever you want. It's sad. If you're not doing what you're doing, you're gonna fail. If you're trying to harvest in spring, you're gonna fail. If you're trying to plant in August, you're done. It's too late. You've gotta learn to season it. I think we're Proverbs 19.2 now. Desire without knowledge. Every kid's got all these desires. No one's sitting them down and saying, okay, do you understand the high cost that comes with that desire? And because we don't do that, here's what happens in the hearts of our kids. They start to perish. I wanted to be this, but I couldn't. I failed. I'm no good, Right? It wasn't just believe in whatever. No, it took hard work in there. It took seasons. It took planting and harvesting. And so what happens in their heart is this. Kids then retreat as teens and as young adults into somewhere that they feel like they're killing it, right? So I couldn't be an NFL star because I didn't know the seasons, but you should see me at Madden 2020, bro. I'm killing it there. It's sad to me. We gotta tell them you gotta season it. If this is really what you want to do, if this is your high goal, there's cost to it. Oh, Matt, I'm not a kid. What about me? What kind of desire has God put in your heart? Season it. Well, I'd like to be CEO of the business I'm in right now. Okay, cool. That's your high-level goal. You gotta start breaking it down. What are some mid-level goals to that, right? Start getting some education, Start moving out of production mentality into processes. Start finding out why, why the company does the things it does. Train somebody to take over your job, right? You do all those things. Those are mid-level. Low-level goal, get enough sleep. Show up to work on time early. Volunteer for every single opportunity. Spend time with Jesus so that you're centered and you don't start going crazy with business stuff. Those are low-level, right? That's what you do. You're saying, here's the seasons I'm in right now. Here's the steps I need to do. Here's the plowing. Here's the planting. Here's the weeding. Here's the watering that I need to do. And you got to center it on Jesus. I want to be the CEO, not for me, but I want to be there as an ambassador of Jesus in 
my company to influence it for godly ends. Gotta season it. And Proverbs, man, over and over, it uses the farming analogy because it's so perfect. If you're planting in the wrong season, you'll never have the harvest you want. So kids, if you're young, if you're driven, learn the season you're in and make sure and do what you're supposed to do in that season so the next season has its fruitfulness in it. All right, so start it, shape it, season it, and then fourthly, and hugely important, spirit it or spiritful, either one. Listen to this, it's Proverbs 16. And this, once again, theme, I'm just hitting on some highlights. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from Yahweh. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but Yahweh weighs the spirit. Commit your work to Yahweh and your plans will be established. Yahweh has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Verse seven, when a man's ways please Yahweh, he makes his enemies to be at peace with him. But a warning, verse 25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You gotta spirit it or be spiritful. So I was walking with a high schooler a while back and they're graduating, asking him those questions. What are you gonna do? What's, what's, what's your plan? What's your, what's, what, where, are you, where are you headed in life? And he had this answer. He said, well, I had this plan to go do this thing, but I'm not gonna do that anymore. I said, why not? He said, because I want, I want my life to have meaning. I wanna do something more than, than contribute to my bank account. I want to contribute to a community. I want to contribute to people. I want meaning. I thought that's interesting. And it's a trend. Here's what I've noticed about very successful people. They'll, they'll, they'll kill it in whatever they're doing. And at some point in their life, they get where money no longer matters and they want meaning. And so they start causes, right? Well, we're going to start this foundation or we're going to cure this disease. Or we're going to build this community center or we're going to, Right? It happens in almost every single super successful people. They come to a point in their life where it's not enough to be successful. They want meaning. They want something to transcend them. So I recently finished, a week ago, Simon Sinek's new book called Infinite Game. And I could sum up that book in just this sentence. It's, uh, it's not enough for a business to be successful, they also have to have meaning, what he calls a just cause. And when I'm reading this, I'm just snickering to myself, thinking, what are you talking about? If you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in the kingdom, what are you talking about? Just cause. Wall Street was not built on meaning, right? People don't invest in a stock because, man, that, that company has great meaning, Right? The world economy does not run on meaning. What does it run on? Money. And yet, and yet, when they start looking at MBAs and people graduating from Harvard's, one of the top things on their list, I wanna work for a company that has a just cause, that has meaning. Because there's something in us that knows this is not enough. I'm supposed to have a mission. And so as a believer in Jesus, you start saying this, commit your ways to the Lord. Your plans will be established. 
Man, if you're pleasing the Lord, even your enemies are gonna be at peace with you. That there is a way to actually work inside of whatever you're doing, inside of whatever desire God has put on your heart that partners with Jesus, right? So Jesus puts it like this, Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all this other stuff will be added to you. All the desires, the desire to oversee, the desire to be ambitious, all these other things are gonna be added to you. And there's this false narrative that I always fight that for you and I to contribute to God's kingdom that we need uh, to be a pastor or we need to be a um, uh, missionary or we need to go to seminary. No way. So if you remember this summer, I did a series called Ignorant and I did one on the spirit. The spirit doesn't show up at Pentecost. The spirit shows up in Genesis 1 verse 2. And what we looked at was the first two individuals that God's Ruach, his spirit, is said to be upon. The first one, Genesis 41, a guy by the name of Joseph. Joseph is a politician. And as a politician, he is godly. He is honest. He is a man that works hard and keeps his hands off the ladies. Add that to your list of biblical miracles. A hardworking, honest, no-touch-the-ladies politician. And the Bible says, God's spirit rested upon him. The next guy is this guy named Bezalel in Exodus 31. And he's a construction foreman who is building the tabernacle. And it says God was going to put his spirit onto Bezalel, his ruach. So you've got the first two guys that God's spirit is resting upon, filling, white-collar politician, blue-collar construction worker. How amazing is that, right? That's not the missionary. That's not, this is, hey, when you're about what you're doing, when you're doing the desires that God has put on your heart, I'll empower you. I'll be with you. I'll engage you. So what it means in conclusion is this. Whatever I'm doing, I'm inviting Jesus into it. Jesus, I have these desires. I wanna start a business. Jesus, I have these desires. I wanna be a CEO of a business. Jesus, I have these desires. I wanna be a doctor. Jesus, I have these desires. I wanna be a missionary. I wanna be a pastor. What, across the entire spectrum, you're saying, come with me. Because ultimately, Jesus is the smartest person in your field. You want good counsel? You wanna be sharpened? Invite Jesus in. And I've told you the story before about how I was struggling as an engineer with this project and I finally prayed, and the next day, I had the answer. It was, it was a light bulb went off on my head. Like, hey, it's not about just in the sanctuary over here. Jesus wants to help me wherever. So that when I go back to that business, I do things differently. That, that the way that I carry myself is not about greed, but about grace. It's not about the laws. It's about love. It's you invite Jesus into those things. It's your ambitions, partnering with Jesus, going, starting things, seizing and getting counsel and just saying, Jesus, I want this to glorify you and bring people into your kingdom. The way that I do my desire, the way that I walk this out, not stepping on people, not doing it dog eat dog way, but doing it the brilliant, biblical, wise way, equipped for every good 
work. And when he uses you, here's what happens. You get joy. When I get used by Jesus, there's nothing that brings me more joy than that. And I tell young people all the time this. They're like, what should I do? I say, I don't think it matters what you do, unless it's legal and moral. I don't think it matters what you're doing or where you go. Jesus has this one question. Can I use you when you get there? Do anything. Be a politician. We need them, right? Be a construction foreman. Man, it'd be awesome. And Jesus would say, hey, at that place, can I use you when you get there? So we had to come to the table. And maybe that's what you need to ask yourself right now. You have desires, you have ambitions, you have things. Have you brought them and committed your ways to him saying, Jesus, in all these things, I wanna be used by you. I wanna remember you, that you are the king and you have come. And this is your kingdom. And I wanna participate and partner with you in this kingdom. Use me tomorrow. So if you have communion, grab it. I'm gonna grab mine and we'll take it together. So Father, I thank you for giving us the gift of your son. Jesus, I thank you for being obedient even unto the death of the cross. And I ask today for all of us, Lord, that we would have godly ambitions that are channeled into glorifying your name and building your kingdom. So as we eat and as we remember all that you've done for us, the grace that you've given to us, would it not be bestowed in vain upon us? But would we work harder? Would the seed be planted deeper? Would it grow stronger for your glory and for our joy? Let's eat together. And as we drink, I pray, Lord, as we drink that this cup would remind us of Romans 8, 28. That the blood that you spilled on that Friday that seemed so horrendous, that caused your disciples to despair and to run and to hide, that same blood became precious on Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, because it signified our adoption, our forgiveness, our redemption, the payment for our sins, atonement. That you can take what the enemy would want to use for evil and you can turn it for good. So we drink of that. We drink of redemption and atonement and forgiveness. We drink of your grace and your mercy. We drink because we need to. So I pray for any that would be out there listening or watching this today that feel unworthy. I pray that they would know that we are accepted into the beloved simply and purely based on your work on our behalf. That's how we're brought in. That your acceptance is unconditionally based on you. 
your adoption of us as sons and daughters, future kings and queens. It's your work that we enjoy. So let us drink of acceptance and forgiveness and cleansing and redemption. Let's drink together. We pray this in your name. Amen. God bless you guys.